Well, keep your Bibles open at uh, Genesis 1 uh, as we work our way through uh, this chapter. Now, a number of years ago, uh, not long after beginning to date Beth, I learned something very, very important. I think it was something I probably knew already, um, or I knew the theory of, but I learned the reality of it. There's no point trying to keep uh, a secret from her. Uh, I think I knew that that was probably a good idea not to try and keep secrets from her, but there was one event that really uh, thrust it home to us. Now, one thing that some of you will already know about us is that we love a good crime drama. These days, it's the sort of uh, the American crime dramas that have a, a little bit of lightheartedness in them. The, the, the episodes are short enough to watch a couple after the kids have gone to bed. They're not very taxing on the brain, which is perfect for us at the end of a day. But Growing up, I'd been raised on uh, Agatha Christie, the queen of murder mystery. And for fans of whodunits, maybe the greatest treat of all is going to London, to St. Martin's Theatre, to watch The Mousetrap. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you probably have no idea. It's the classic murder mystery. It's been running in the West End for almost 70 years. There's a twist in the plot at the very end, and After the final curtain comes down, one of the characters comes back onto stage to ask the audience to promise to keep the secret of whodunit. You're not supposed to reveal the twist to anyone so as not to spoil the secret for future audiences. And that system, it seemed, worked pretty well until the advent, uh, the invention of Wikipedia, where you can now go and find it all out for yourself. It's rather a shame. Years ago, I took Beth to London to see the mousetrap, and in keeping with the promise I'd made previous times, I resolutely refused to tell her the twist. And at the interval, I turned to her and asked if she was enjoying it, and she promptly identified exactly who the murderer was. And I knew then, don't even try and keep a secret from her. The point is, when you go and see uh, that play, you are asked to keep the secret in order that the mystery might be preserved. Now, there are some things in Genesis 1, uh, and I guess as Steph was reading it, there might have been some questions going off in your minds. Some things in Genesis 1 that are deeply mysterious. How was it possible for there to be light before the sun was created? How long ago was this week of creation? Things that are, are deeply mysterious that we might... Uh, begin to be able to try to piece together the answers to, but the reality is, as we know with uh, this great chapter of the Bible, there are all sorts of people with all sorts of different answers. Uh, And it's as if God, the great author, has decided in his wisdom that there are just some things that we are not supposed to know the precise answer to. Who can fathom the mind of the Lord, asks Isaiah. Deep mysteries are present in Genesis 1. And yet there are other things that God has made very, very clear. And unlike the mousetrap, he doesn't reveal these secrets to a select audience and then make them promise to keep the secret from the rest of the world. He's revealed these secrets, these mysteries to Moses, and he's written them down for the world to understand. And I say these are mysteries because for people who reject God and his word, these are questions that they will spend a lifetime trying to answer without reference to him. 
Why is this world like it is? What is the point of it all? Where is this world headed? And to eyes that are shut to the word of God, these things are still mysteries. And yet God in Genesis 1 has stood on the stage and revealed to us the answers. He stood on the stage and instead of saying, keep the secret, he said, here's here's the answer. No mystery surrounding these things. Three great truths this morning that I want to draw out of Genesis 1. Three truths about the universe that God has created that he wants us to understand. And they all center on our, our theme for this morning of Christ, the King of all. That is the center point, the hinge upon, all, uh, upon which all of this really hangs. Truth number one, because the universe is created by God, it has order. The universe has order because the God who created it is himself a God of order. Why is the earth as it is? Why is it precisely the right distance from the sun that it creates the perfect environment for life? Why does the earth rotate on its axis and orbit the sun? Questions like that cannot be adequately answered by those who reject the God of the Bible and the word of his truth. But Genesis 1 unveils to us how it was that God transformed the uninhabitable into a world of unutterable beauty the perfect environment for life, which tells us how it was that God brought order from the dark chaos of verse 2. And in verse 2, that may be one area in which you're beginning to think, well, what on earth was going on here? Have you heard the one about uh, a doctor, an engineer, and a politician? They were arguing as to which of their professions was the oldest. Well, said the doctor, without a doctor, mankind couldn't have survived. So I'm sure mine's the oldest profession. Uh, No, said the engineer. Before life even began, there was chaos, so it must have had some kind of engineer to bring order from the chaos. But, chipped in the politician, who created the chaos? (laughs) I had no idea I was not going to be the first person to bring up politics or Brexit this morning. Thanks, Matt. But uh, that's not a comment on Brexit, by the way. But who created the chaos? It wasn't politicians. Uh, And the reality is, you know, if we accept verse 1 as truth, which I trust we do, then the dark deep of verse 2 is part of the creation. It's as if God was creating the raw materials he was going to use, or the blank canvas onto which he was going to paint this universe. Even the deep that we read of in verse 2 was part of creation, a staging post on the way to this beautiful world. This world that is so carefully, precisely designed by the God we're introduced to in Genesis 1. You know, just reading through this chapter several times in the last week has reminded me again and again how ordered, how structured this world is. Just look at the days of creation. On days 1 to 3, God created day and night the sky, the land, and the sea. And then on days four to six, what does he do? Well, he fills those spaces that he's created. There's order to God's creative methods. Day one, he creates day and night. On day four, he fills the day with sun and the night with moon. 
And I just love the little throwaway line at the end of verse 16. He also made the stars. Billions, billions of stars in the universe. And Moses throws it in. By the way, he did that too. So day four fills what God created on day one. Day two, God separated the waters above from the waters below. That is, he gathered the waters up into the clouds and the sky. He separated those from the waters that covered the earth, the sea. On day five, he fills the sky and the sea with living creatures. On day three, God moves the seas in order to create dry land with grass and plants. And then on day six, he creates living creatures that populate the land. As God speaks, it was so. There's a beautiful orderliness, a structure about even these days of creation. Creation has order because its creator is the God of order. Sir Isaac Newton, the famous uh, mathematician, had a mechanical replica of our solar system built for himself. At the center was a large golden ball that represented the sun, and and revolving around it were were smaller spheres that represented the the planets. They were connected by rods of different lengths, and they were all geared together by cogs and belts and all sorts to make them move around the sun in perfect harmony. One day, an unbelieving friend visited Newton and said, Newton, what, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Seizing his opportunity, Newton, without looking up, said, nobody. Nobody? That's right, said Newton. All those balls and cogs and gears just happened to come together, and wonders of wonders began orbiting that central ball with perfect timing. And the friend sort of got the point. The existence of that model presuppose a maker, how much more so the actual universe. And yet nobody is the answer that so many people give to the question, who made it like this? The very precision, the very order, the existence of an organized creation points us to the God of the Bible, the divine designer. But you know there's something else about the order of creation, the order that exists within creation, and and it's really important that we do notice it. Else our whole view of the world, our whole view of our humanity, is skewed. And the thing we need to notice is the place of humanity at the top of the order of creation. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation, the top of the earthly order. And I think we can see three reasons why that is the case in, uh, in the text. Firstly, it's because humanity is created in the image of God. Verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image. That is not God talking to angels. Uh, this is a, an early pointer to the existence of a triune God. We've been introduced to God the Spirit in verse 2. The New Testament tells us that God the Son was present and active in creation as well. This is a a conversation, verse 26, a conversation that took place within the Godhead. Mankind is created in the image of God. That is not true of anything else in all of creation. As wonderful and as beautiful as animals and birds and fish might be, they are not created in the image of God. Human beings, therefore, are not 
the same as animals. Not animals. Not, we're created different to other creatures. Above them. Humans alone are given this special privilege of being in the image of God. What, what does it mean to be in the image of God? There, there are so many dimensions to it. But above all else, I think it means that we are made to be spiritual beings. God has given us a spiritual dimension by which we can relate to him. God's given humanity an eternal soul, and we hunger after God. That is not true of any other created being. To be in the image of God is a privilege granted only to humans. And so humans are there, created, put by God at the the top of all of his creation, created in the image of God. Second reason Genesis 1 establishes humans' place there at the top of the order is because God spoke to the man and the woman. Look at verse 28. God addresses them personally. He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. There was a personal relationship that existed between God and humanity. That was not the case with any other creature God had made. Uh, And the third reason I think we're pointed to humanity's place at the top of the created order is because both verses 26 and 28 give mankind the God-given right to rule over the rest of creation, to rule over it and subdue it. It's not giving humans the right to exploit the rest of creation. It's a command to responsible stewardship. And so I think that all of those things taken together mean that we need to have a clear and biblical perspective on the relationship between humanity and the rest of creation. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. And yet as a result, we have a responsibility to the rest of creation. Now we live in a a very moralistic society in which things like animal rights and environmental issues are, are very hot topics Uh, And in a sense, it's a good thing, because humanity has got a pretty terrible track record when it comes to looking after the world God has given us. It's important that we as Christians do not abuse this creation, whether that's in terms of animal welfare or thinking carefully about how much plastic we're using, all those kinds of uh, issues. It's important for us to think those things through, and yet we also need to remember that animals are not humans. And that this world, this planet, will and can only be saved and renewed by Jesus. It is important to get things in perspective. There is an order to all of creation, and humanity is the pinnacle, made in the image of God, given authority over the earth and over animals and all of the other created beings. Because the universe is created by God, it has order. There is structure. Second thing that we notice in Genesis 1 is that because the universe is created by God, it will be ruled by his chosen king. Creation is ordered in such a way that humanity is created to rule over it. But of course... We can't read Genesis 1 without, in the back of our minds, knowing what happens just a couple of chapters later. When the first man, Adam, failed in this God-given responsibility. And so even as, as early as Genesis 1, we are pointed to our need for one who would come, one who is greater than Adam, 
one who would come to restore order. We're pointed to our need for the Lord Jesus, the perfect king who will come and who will rule at the head of a new created order. So many people ask the question, where where is it all headed? Where's this world going? The truth is, we are headed towards the day when King Jesus will rule undisputed over the entire cosmos. We are so aware how this world is fallen from the goodness of Genesis 1. Jesus is the king who will restore order. As we read Genesis 1, we realize that creation is crying out for a ruler. Even in its original uncorrupted state, God's order included authority. Authority itself is not a consequence of the fall. Even in its unruined state, creation needed a ruler. And in Genesis 1, it's humanity that is given the role. Verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. We're so aware, aren't we, as we look back over history, even recent history, the last hundred years, how authority has been abused and and used not to bless but to destroy. Think back to to some of the, the despotic rulers and dictators of the last hundred years who have abused their authority. And we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that authority itself is a bad thing. It is not a consequence of the fall. It is God-given. Creation needs a ruler. Creation is ordered in such a way that humanity is to rule over it. But the first man, Adam, failed. Even as early as Genesis 1, we're pointed forward to our need for Jesus. A perfect king who will rule at the head of a new creation points us to our need for him, God's chosen king, the perfect king, who will rule over a renewed cosmos with divine authority and perfect grace and gentleness, a king who is going to come and give his life for his people. Could there be a greater, more perfect king than that? The Bible tells us that God is working to bring everything under the perfect kingship of Jesus, absolutely everything. There is nothing in all of creation that is not under the rule of King Jesus. Jesus is Lord and King of all things. This world, all of creation is heading somewhere. It's heading towards that day when Jesus will be unrivaled and undisputed as King. Uh, And this is one of those peculiar now and not yet scenarios that we find all through the Bible. Jesus is Lord and King of everything now. Do you believe that? Somebody does. Excellent. He is Lord and he is king of everything right now. He's on heaven's throne. And nobody is going to remove him from that place of authority. And yet his rule is hidden and unrecognized by so many. He reigns now, but his full and final reign is still not yet. And as we live in this period, the now and the not yet, we we need to reestablish a really robust understanding of the the lordship of Jesus over everything. There is no aspect of this creation over which Jesus is not king. Even though it appears sometimes as though Satan is wreaking havoc 
We need to not give him more credit or authority than he deserves. Rest assured that Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is on heaven's throne. He is God's appointed king. And God is working out all things, bringing all of this creation towards the day when Satan is finally vanquished and Jesus' kingship is undisputed. God has exalted him to the highest place, says Paul in Philippians 2. And given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's everywhere. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is not a single inch of this creation. Of this cosmos. Not a single inch over which Jesus is not Lord and King. Even in those countries where Christianity is essentially outlawed. Jesus is king there as well. He is Lord of all. And as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, every knee will one day bow to him. And so the choice is bow now or bow then. He calls us to to crown him king and fall at his feet in willing surrender. There is a need for a king right from creation. The tragic consequence of the fall is that every human being thinks that they themselves are sovereign over their own lives. And despite the fact that God has appointed Jesus as Lord and King over all things, the fallen human heart is constantly tricked into thinking otherwise. One of the most popular songs played at funeral services, Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. What a tragic indictment on the folly of the human heart. And I wonder whether that might be you this morning. King or queen of your own heart, your own destiny. I recently discovered a story of a guy called Joshua Norton. He he lived in San Francisco in the 19th century. He became rich through the gold rush and then some poor investments led him to complete ruin later in life. Something happened to his mind as a result. And one day he just decided, he got up and just decided he was going to declare himself emperor of the United States. And and the citizens of San Francisco were were quite amused by this. They went along with the game and they invited him to formal occasions and things like that. And, And of course all that did was just reinforce the illusion in his own mind. It became a firmer reality. And when he died... Thousands of people lined the streets in curiosity. Uh, This deluded old man hadn't really harmed anybody. He'd caused a few chuckles, but to him it was deadly serious. And he died convinced of his grandeur. He died convinced he was emperor of the United States. You know, millions of people live and die under the illusion that life is all about them. That they're sovereign over themselves. It's a delusion. Because Jesus is Lord of all. He's king over all of creation. He's the king that Genesis 1 cries out for. The perfect king who is going to rule over the entirety of God's creation. How foolish, therefore, to refuse to enthrone him in our own lives. It's very sad that too many people profess that they are happy to have Jesus as their savior. But refuse to have him as Lord. There's not a single area of this cosmos 
over which Jesus is not king. There is not a single area of our lives over which Jesus is not rightfully king. You know what it's like when you've got visitors coming, you, you kind of tidy up and you make things look nice and neat. If you're like me, you just end up moving things from one room to another. But you make sure that the rooms people are going to see are nice and neat and tidy. How would you feel if the visitors decided to look in the cupboard under the stairs? That's not an invitation to those people who are coming to our house this afternoon, by the way. You know, we're a bit like that, aren't we? I've not met a single Christian who does not have a cupboard under the stairs. An area of life we keep closed off to Jesus. The reality, he wants to open that door. He deserves to be Lord there too. For Jesus to be Lord and King of our lives means to be Lord of all of life the private as well as the public? Is he Lord over our words and our deeds? Is he Lord over our decisions and our priorities? Is he Lord in our homes and families? Is he Lord over our stewardship of time and money? Is he Lord over our desires and our thoughts? May our life's refrain not be, I did it my way, but I did it his way. Genesis 1, you see, cries out for a king. We need a king. The cosmos needs a king. Because that is the way God has ordered it. And the only rightful king, the only perfect king is Jesus. The king who gave his life for us. The king that creation has been longing for. The king that one day will put it all right again and restore order from what is once again chaos. And he will reign forever. His perfect rule is on its way. And so we join with all of creation in longing for that day when King Jesus comes to reign in glory. Because the universe is created by God, it will be ruled by his chosen king. There's going to be a new world order in which Jesus is king. But what does that new world order look like? Come to the third great truth. Because the universe is created by God, it has a purpose. Many people ask the question, what is it all about? And for them, it's a complete mystery. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's that famous quest to find the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And what is the You can type that into Google, by the way, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And it brings up a calculator with the answer 42. That's apparently the answer. Contrary to what... Many believe this world, this life is not meaningless. There's a purpose behind the created universe. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed that day and made it holy. See, humanity, though the pinnacle of all creation, is not the ultimate purpose. Though we are the top of the created order, we are not what this world is all about. The ultimate goal of all things is rest. That is what this new world order is going to look like. Perfect rest under the perfect king. On the seventh day, God rested from his creative work. It doesn't mean God sat down in an armchair by the fire and put his feet up. It's not that he had nothing else to do. In fact, Jesus tells us in, in John's gospel that... He says, my father is always at his work to this very day. God rested from his creative work because the creation was done, but he's been active ever since upholding and sustaining the cosmos. 
we, we mustn't have a wrong idea about what rest means. Rest does not mean doing nothing. That's where the leaders of God's people over the centuries went so wrong. In, in the law, God went on to make it clear what the purpose for this Sabbath day was. That it was rest from work for worship. It wasn't a rest of nothingness. And over time, the Sabbath day, this seventh day that God's people were to observe, became corrupted, overburdened by rules and regulations. You, you weren't allowed to do anything that remotely resembled work or effort. Well, they turned a gift from God, the, the pattern of rest, they turned this gift from God into something so rigid that it had lost all meaning. And even today, there are those who do the same. The Lord's Day is a special, wonderful day that God has given us. We must avoid overburdening ourselves or others with rules and regulations. I once heard a story of a preacher who went to take the Sunday services in a, in a village church. After the morning service, he went for lunch with the church secretary, and he sat in the lounge, and he looked through to the kitchen, and he saw the secretary's wife peeling the potatoes for lunch. And they sat down, and he was offered these roast potatoes, and he, he declined, said, I couldn't possibly. I saw you peeling them on, on the Lord's Day. I couldn't possibly eat them. Sometime later, he visits the church again. He goes for lunch again with the church secretary. And this time, his wife serves up jacket potatoes for lunch. And she watches with interest as the preacher scoops out all the insides but leaves the skin on the plate. And so she says, why could I not peel them before cooking, but you can peel them afterwards? <laughs> we can tie ourselves in knots with man-made rules and regulations. What, very, what Genesis 2, 2 and 3 does very simply is establish a God-given pattern of rest. And it reminds us that there is more to life than work. Above all, that is, what, that is what Sunday, that is what the Lord's Day does. Reminds us that there is more to life than work. It points us to the fact that the whole purpose, the goal of creation is rest. And all of creation is longing for that rest. Many of us long for the weekend or for a day off, a day we can spend as we like, resting from work. Or, or we look forward to our holidays. Trouble is, when you've got children, you normally get to the end of the holiday and think, I'll go back to work for a rest. But there's a perfect rest offered through the gospel of Jesus. Rest from the weary labor of living in this world. Eternal rest in the presence of the creator God. A rest that is offered us through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the writer's point there is that there is an ultimate rest that awaits those who trust in the Lord Jesus. And it is not a rest governed by rules and regulations. It is not a rest of nothingness. It, nothing could be more boring than doing nothing. It's a rest of eternally gazing at and worshipping the King of Kings. And if you this morning are longing for that rest, rest of soul, can I tell you, you will only find it if you trust in the Lord Jesus. The one whose death on the cross is the only way to that peace with God and the promise of rest. So many people ask the question, what is the point of it all? Because the universe is created by God, it has a purpose. It's heading towards a perfect eternal rest. 
These are truths that God has made clear. There's no mystery as to why this world is as it is. There's no mystery as to where the world is headed. There's a new world order on its way in which Jesus is king and all will be at rest. The book of Genesis, as we described it last week, is a book of beginnings. But it's also, maybe above all else, a book of longing. It's a book that is filled with longing, yearning for when it all will be fulfilled and put right again. Lord, haste the day. Shall we pray? Lord, we long for the day when all will be right again. We marvel at the beauty of your creation. And yet we long for the day when things will be even more beautiful, even more wonderful still. A day when King Jesus will reign undisputed, unrivaled. May he reign in our hearts today and every day. May we long May we long for what is to come. Lord, haste the day. Amen.